And um, if you have a Bible, I ask that you turn to Joshua chapter 4, or chapter, chapter 3, I'm sorry, Joshua chapter 3. Um, if you are new to the Scriptures, um, Joshua is uh, toward the front of the Bible, it's the sixth book in, so just turn to the front and turn about uh, six books in and you'll find it. I'm going to switch podiums here. John, I hope I don't mess your music all up, but God is in control. So we'll trust that he just put it all into the right spot. Amen? Because we believe that God is just like that. Joshua chapter 3. Let's read, and then we're going to dive in and cover a lot of ground today. Joshua 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and about it, about 2,000 cubits, which is about a half a mile, in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, each uh, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows in all its brinks throughout uh, the harvest time, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarephan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on the dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Pray with me. 
God, I ask that you open our eyes to this passage. Um, we don't want to just simply get into a text and, and just simply learn as, uh, as if we're in, in, in a class today, but we ask that the, the words in this page, that the, the text that we're going to be studying this morning, these, these chapters from Joshua, um, that, uh, that, that you reveal yourself to us through them, uh, that we see in here um, you as you have always been, the God the, of, of all the earth, the Lord of all the earth, the creator uh, who has all power and dominion. And I pray, God, that we will see you, that we will see Christ, and that we will fall at his feet, and that we will uh, realize that we are standing on holy ground. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and that we ask this. Amen. So I grew up in the 90s, and uh, as uh, the rest of you who grew up in the 90s, who, who was like a child, can say you were a child of the 90s? All right, so we all grew up on Aladdin. Amen? Disney's Aladdin. Genie, the blue thing. I loved Aladdin. I, I actually broke my foot pretending I was Aladdin in like 1993. Or whenever the movie came out. Let's just say the carpet didn't fly, all right? Now, if you remember Disney's Aladdin, you remember Genie, right? Who would do these really cool things for Aladdin. What would happen, though, uh, when Genie couldn't do something? When Aladdin asked Genie to act in a certain way and Genie said, nah, can't do that. I can't mess with love. I can't, etc. etc." What would happen? What would happen with Aladdin? He would get upset, right? Um, he would write Genie off. He would say, well, then you're no longer part of my team. Like, Aladdin would actually get really upset at Genie when Genie didn't do for Aladdin what Aladdin wanted him to do, correct? You guys remember this? Now, here's the reality. I think a lot of us look at God as in that same way. I don't know if it's because we grew up on Aladdin or not. I don't know if it's because we were inundated with moralism at some point in our church life, but we, we look at God as if we found a genie, as if we've rubbed this thing and, it, and he's popped out and he's to answer all of our requests. He's to give us whatever we want, whatever we ask for. And then if this God, who is a blue genie, doesn't do for us like we want him to do, we get upset. We fly off on our carpet. What I, what I hope that we see today in Joshua is a new vision of who God is. A bigger vision of who God is. If, if you are sitting here and, and you have been believing in a God that, is, that, that, that operates for you as, as a genie, someone who's just part of your team and you call on him whenever you need him, whenever you're in a bind, I hope that today you see God as he is, the Lord of all the earth. We're going to be covering a lot of ground today. We're, we're actually covering three chapters in Joshua, Joshua chapter 3, 
chapter 4 and chapter 5. What I want to do uh, is, is to give you somewhat of a structure of how these three chapters work together before we dive into it. So what we're going to see in chapter 3, which is what we just read, is that uh, uh, Israel is crossing over the Jordan and God stops up the Jordan. It just stops flowing and they cross over on dry ground. And then what we're going to see in chapter 4 and chapter 5 are three different memorials that God gives to the people so that they don't forget God. So they don't forget what they had just experienced. And then at the very end of chapter 5, we see what I think is maybe the most pivotal moment in this entire story of Joshua, and that is the commander of the Lord's army himself, God in the flesh, showing up, having a private one-on-one meeting with Joshua. So we're going to actually start there. If this was a movie, what we're doing is we're starting like with our last scene. You know how a lot of directors do this? And then we're going to kind of go forward or go to the back, go to the beginning to understand how we got to that last scene. So we're starting with the last scene here, this, the end of chapter 5, the appearance of this commander. So I want you to look with me, if you turn over two chapters to Joshua chapter 5 as we get into this and look, at, look with me at verse 13. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, so he's, he's now on the other side of the Jordan, he's near the city, the enemy, enemy territory, he's about a mile away from Jericho. When he's by Jericho, he lifts up his eyes and he looks. And behold, a man is standing there before him with, with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? So get this picture. Joshua in enemy territory, he he sees all of a sudden a man standing there carrying a sword. A wise question for anybody to ask who just walked into enemy territory is, who are you? Are you for us or are you against us? Are you going to help us or should I pull out my sword and begin to defend myself and protect myself? Now, look at, look at his response. The man with the sword, he says, no, which is kind of a weird response. Are you for us or are you against us? No. <laughs> As if to say, wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. Neither. Look what he says. No, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. So here's Joshua, right? The commander of the army. And who he's coming into contact with is the commander of the army. Or the better commander has shown up on the scene to have a a meeting with the lesser commander, Joshua. He says, I am the commander of, of, of the army of the Lord. I have come. Joshua here falls on his face uh, onto the earth and he worships him. And Joshua says, what does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army says to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now I agree with theologians down through history that this is in fact an appearance of Jesus Christ himself in Joshua chapter 5. The divine warrior who comes 1,500 years later as a baby, he appears here as a divine warrior. 
Now, I, I believe this is Jesus just really quickly, if, you want, if you're taking notes, for three reasons. Number one, he receives worship. No man of God in Scripture ever receives worship. I think of uh, Peter. Cornelius comes up to Peter and falls down at his feet and starts to worship Peter. And Peter's like, yo, I'm a man. Get up. Do not worship me. Let's think of angels. Angels don't receive worship. We can think of Revelation 21 after John is led by an angel to see these great revelations. John falls at the feet of the angel and the angel says, yo, I'm just a servant like you. Get up. Do not worship me. In the scriptures, only God is worthy of worship and only God receives worship. And here, the man with the sword receives worship as God. Second reason, I believe it's Jesus is because the ground itself becomes holy and God makes things sacred. The presence of God makes things sacred. We immediately think of Moses with the burning bush, right? The voice of the burning bush, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. That same voice is present right here as the man with the sword, the commander of the Lord's army, and he's making the ground holy. The third reason I believe it's Jesus is because it says it's God. If you look at uh, chapter 6, verse 2, it says, and the Lord said to Joshua that capital L-O-R-D means Jehovah. It's the personal name for God. So it's saying Jehovah here said to Joshua. This is a meeting with God, and God in the flesh is who? Everybody say it. So it makes sense that what we are seeing here is the same Jesus, the Jesus that was born in Bethlehem, the Jesus that walked on water, the Jesus that fed the 5,000, the Jesus that told the little girl to arise and to wake up, the Jesus that turned the water into wine is appearing here in Joshua 5 as the commander of the Lord's army, as the one behind his people, the one who is actually fighting for his people. And here Joshua then falls on his face and worships him. And the response from the commander is, take off your shoes for you are standing on holy ground. Now what leads Joshua to have that kind of reaction? I wonder if, if Jesus just simply appeared to you, if you would have that kind of reaction. If you would just immediately, in awe and in reverence and in fear, fall on your face before him and worship him. What is it that led Joshua to this reaction? So now we're going to go back. You see how we're doing this? We're going to go back to the beginning of our text and we're going to track with Joshua, and we're going to see the events that have just transpired, which leads him now to this place where he's lying face down in the ground before Jesus Christ. So turn with me back to chapter 3. We see here in chapter 3, this, this epic saga continues, and the Israelites are camped out in Shedim. I want to show you a map so you can kind of get a picture of where we're going with this, you can see Shadim right here. There's Jericho over there on the other side of the Jordan. The Jordan River lies between them. And in, in chapter 3, they are demonstrating a faith in action. Joshua is demonstrating a faith that actually prepares and thinks and uses his brain and his intellect. And he moves and he risks his own life. And he, he tells people it's time to move in. We have the green light. Let's do this thing. And so he directs the people to follow the ark. They, they walked six miles, 
and they get to the Jordan River. Now they stop. Jordan itself means descender. One theologian commenting on the Jordan River uh, says that after the Jordan passes the Sea of Galilee, you see there up, up, well, it's farther up top, after it passes the Sea of Galilee, the river's current increases. It plunges 27 horrible rapids. It falls 1,000 feet. Sounds like it would be fun, right? On a raft, right, Gwen, Carol, and David? My rapid champions over there. Um, if you guys want to see a picture of Gwen Carroll getting smacked into a wall, see me afterward. <laughs> Additionally, in chapter 3, verse 15, we see that the river is flooded. This is harvest season. And the river is flooded, meaning it's stronger and it's deeper and it's wider. And it's flowing at a vastly accelerated rate. Listen, Humanly speaking, there is no way to get 500,000 people safe, or five to 600,000 people safely across this river. However, they are people who have a faith in this God. They have a faith that God is the all-powerful God of creation, of the universe, and that they are on His side. And so look at verse 15 and 16 of chapter 3. Verse 15 as, as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan as the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap far away at Adam. So this is 17 miles, you can see it on the screen, 17 miles upstream. I want you to see the magnitude of this. They see way down there, down the river, the waters just stand up onto a heap. And the remaining of the waters just flow on out. And it's cut off. And they walk across on dry land. Now everybody say, that's pretty amazing. Alright? It is. Now I want you to see though, why God did this. Because sometimes God parts waters in our lives. Sometimes He stops that flow, doesn't He? Right? I mean, we've experienced His power at different times. But why does He do that? Is this an end in and of itself? Is it because God is our genie and we get to the river and we're like, we rub our little lamp and out pops the genie and we say, part this water and He stops it for us and we walk across? Why does God do this? I want you to see this. He gives us, or he gives Israel, three different things, three different memorials is what we're going to call them. Three memorials so that they remember who God is and why God is doing what he's doing. So that they don't drift into believing that God is just a genie who's going to stop any river whenever you demand it. So three different memorials we're going we're gonna to look at. We're going to dive into each one um, as briefly as possible and then move on. So look at chapter 4. We see the first memor memorial in verse 3. God commands the Israelites to take 12 stones from the dry ground of the middle of the river and to carry with them to where they are going to lodge that night. And so then 
the Israelites walk an, an additional five miles and they land just outside the city of Jericho in an area called Gilgal. So they're now in enemy territory. And there in Gilgal, look at verse 20, chapter 4. Those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So set these stones up from the, from the bottom of the river so that down the road when kids are playing in Gilgal and they say, hey, what do those stones mean? You can tell them. You can tell them what God did for you. You see, God gives us these memorials, these stones, if you would, in our lives, uh, these, these moments where we experience God's power, where we experience that there's something outside of us that's working for us. I mean, for some of you, this may have happened shortly after your conversion. I have some friends who, uh, who, who immediately walked away from an addiction to drugs, who immediately... After their conversion, they said, you know what? I don't need uh, alcohol anymore. I don't need the life of the party scene to make me happy. And they found a happiness elsewhere. They found a happiness in something more real. I have another friend who completely walked away over some time from sexual addiction. And they uh, contribute entirely all of that success to the work of God in their life. These are those moments in our life that we can look back on and we can say, there, there is something more happening in my life than just my own effort. Because for the longest time, my own effort was, tr- I was trying, but it just wasn't enough. And now I'm seeing the cross and I'm seeing God and I'm experiencing his power in my life. And I've seen that, that, that there's another force at work here. These are these, those memorials that God gives us, those stones, if you would, which remind you that God is indeed the powerful God that he claims to be. But I want you to see even deeper than that. Look at the purpose of these stones, this memorial that they set up in Gilgal. Look at verse 20, 24 with me. So here we go. We set the stones up so that we don't forget, but why doesn't he want us to forget? What specifically does he want us to not forget? So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that everybody all around, saved and not saved, in Jericho and elsewhere, so that everybody will know that this God is indeed, as it keeps repeating, the God of all the earth, the Lord of all the earth, so that everybody will know that, but then it says, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So here are these stones that remind us of the waters that were just stopped. And the story of these stones will let everybody know how powerful he is, but you specifically, those who have experienced his power and those who are beneficiaries of his grace, it's so that you will fear God. 
Have you guys ever realized that the fear of God is not for those who are under his judgment? Those in Jericho have not been commanded to fear God. The fear of God is for those who have seen and experienced his power and who are beneficiaries of his grace and they are called to fear him. So that is the first perp- or the first memorial here. They cross the, they cross over on dry dry ground and God gives them these stones so that they will remember his power and so that that, that they will fear him. The second memorial is this. And this ties into the fear of God, which by the way, let me just say this. The fear of God is not a <clears throat> it's not a scared sort of terrorizing, hideous kind of fear because the angry God is just mad at you and you have to somehow please him. That's actually more how we relate to genies. But the Lord of all the earth has demonstrated himself in your life as a God who is all-powerful, the lion who can devour you, yet he is on your side. And that leads us to a holy and awesome reverence, a fear of him. So that fear, let's, let's stick with that, that, that theme, that fear of God then leads us into these other two memorials. And I want, to see, I want you to see how they connect. So the second memorial is this. It's circumcision. Look at memorial number two. Uh, look at verse two of chapter five. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives Uh, which are made out of stones, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So those who were born in the wilderness during the 40 years were not circumcised. And now that they're across the river and they're in the enemy, enemy territory, the second memorial here before they enter into Jericho is circumcision. Circumcise the sons of Israel. Verse three, so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth, which means the hill of foreskins. Great destination for your next family vacation. Now, what is, <clears throat> what is the dumbest thing that an army general could possibly do after moving into enemy territory? I have an idea, circumcision. Let's circumcise all of our fighting soldiers to where we see in verse 8, they have to remain in their camp now until they're healed because that would take a little bit of healing. Do you see immediately how they are putting their entire trust, their entire well-being, they are throwing themselves into the mercy of of God. This is not what we do with genies. You see, genies act for us, but they are primarily on our team. Joshua here and Israel realize that the waters have been stopped. They realize that they are serving the God of all creation and that he is the God that's going to give them. And, and so now their, their, most, their, their primary motivation is simply submission and obedience to 
that God. And if he commands this, okay. We are entirely at his mercy. Now those of you who may be new to Christianity may be wondering what in the world we're talking about. (laughs) What? Are you serious? In the Old Testament, circumcision was simply an outward uh, picture, an outward sign of the inward work that God had done. So the inward work that needs to be done is this, this work of the heart, this, this circumcision of the, 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 uh, the flesh of the heart, the sinful pride, the, the lust, the arrogance, who you are on the inside, that dirty and filthy and dark heart, that that is cut. Like that is the work that only God can do. Circumcision is merely the outward sign of that work. I've told you the, fr- uh, the story before of my friend who uh, converted to Islam as an attempt to do something about this dirty heart that he saw. And he followed Islam, I mean, to a T, as, as he prayed four or five, whatever, however many times a day that he was supposed to. He did everything perfectly. And one day a friend of his said, if there's anybody that's holy, it's this man right here. And he knew immediately that he was not. Because what he realized was that his sin was not just something he did externally, But even if he cleaned up everything externally, even if he stopped smoking and drinking and doing everything right, what you're supposed to do, he had this dark heart and he saw sin as exceedingly sinful. Like it was something that God hated. And it was something that had to be changed, but he could not change it. And what he found was that this same God who circumcised the hearts of Israel and who has stopped the waters, the same God with the scalpel of his grace cut out the flesh, cut off the sin out of his heart as he saw Christ. What he found was that there is more mercy in God than there was sin in him, that the blood of Christ was indeed enough to cover him, and he was gifted the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So what is our, what is our symbol today? Well, it's not circumcision, it's, it's baptism. Colossians chapter 3 shows you how baptism has replaced the old symbol of circumcision. So bapti- when, when someone's baptized, they go under the water as what? As a symbol of uniting with the death of Christ, that we have died with Christ. It's no longer I who live, And then they come out of the water and we are raised with Christ, raised to walk in new life. If you have not been baptized, we're doing baptisms on February 10th. You can just mark that on the communication card and we can chat afterward. Here in, outside of Jericho, in the the land of the Canaanites, they place the mark of their relationship with God on their bodies as a reminder that this God is not only powerful enough to stop the waters and to crush them, 
but he's also a God that has brought them into relationship with him through the forgiveness of their sins. The third memorial that we see here is the Passover. Look at verse 10. When the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. This is the reminder of that night in Egypt when the angel of the Lord came across the land of Egypt. And the angel passed over the homes of those who had the blood splattered on their doors. Because of the blood, Israel was protected that night. Because of the blood, the the judgment of God passed over them. You see, the fear of God, when we understand how mighty and how powerful and how real God actually is, our first response is to look inward and see the ugliness and the sinfulness of sin. But we don't stop there. What we see then is the cross, Him cutting the sin out of us, the forgiveness of our sins, and we see that because of the blood of Christ, that His judgment has passed over uh, our, our house, has passed over our lives, and we are in His family, adopted as His children. Our memorial for that is communion. This is why we take communion so seriously here where Jesus took the body and he broke it and he said, this is my flesh. He took the cup and he passed and he said, this is my blood which is poured out. Don't forget me. Like I'm doing these things in your life. I'm doing magnificent things. I'm forgiving you of your sins. Don't forget me. Don't start believing that I'm just your genie. Don't forget who I actually am. So now finally, getting back to the first scene that we started with. So here they are, they cross the river, they, they set up the stones to remind them to fear God, uh, it, they, they remember their relationship with God, they remember the, the fact that God's judgment has passed over them. Finally now, here's Joshua walking around Jericho, enemy territory, and he lifts up his eyes and he sees a man standing before him with a sword drawn in his hand. See, now we can see why Joshua reacted the way that he reacted. Now we can see why Joshua, just like holy, awesome reverence was just, just struck him and hit him and he fell on his face and he says, what does my Lord say to me? And the Lord's response is, take off your sandals for you are on holy ground. Friends, I do not believe that modern Christians fear God. Not like that. We are so casual. We are so laid back in, our, in the way that we talk about Him. We are so careless in the way that we study His Word. I am not convinced that we believe that this commander is with us. I am not convinced that we believe that wherever the presence of God is, that that ground becomes holy. 
I do not understand how Christians can sit in a church service on Sunday just after they were in bed with another girl on Friday night. If this is holy ground, that is holy ground as well. I'm not convinced that we fear God like that. The modern church today is more likely to be filled with laughter than it is conviction. It's more common to see funny skits than it is to see the great drama of baptism. Anecdotes and personal stories are more likely to draw the worshiper to tears than taking communion together and the great act of repentance. When do we, as believers, when are we overcome with the sense that God is indeed the holy, righteous, all-powerful God who hates sin, when do we, are we reminded of the fact that that God has been so kind to us to come into this world, that the commander came as a baby in a manger, lived his life as a servant, so that we may be reunited with God, by his own death on the cross? When are we aware of the fact that everywhere we walk, every place we go in our recreation, every restaurant we go into, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our friendships, that it's all holy ground. And we're drawn to our faces and we say, oh God, what do you say to me, your servant? You know what the difference is between Joshua and the modern Christian? Joshua was entirely at the mercy of God. However, God is entirely at the mercy of the modern Christian. Meaning, Joshua threw himself into the arms of God do with me what you would. The modern Christian says, if God doesn't do for me what I want him to do, I will kick him to the curb. I will forget him. And I see this all the time in interactions with people in the neighborhood, in the city. We, we, we begin to talk about church. One of the most common things I hear is, I tried that. I tried God. As if God is a genie to try. As if he's another thing to add to your team to maybe make your life a little bit better. You know why people quit God? Why people quit on church? It's because they believed that, that, that if they do certain things, that if, if, if they pray, if they tithe, if they stop drinking too much, if, if they stop sleeping around, if they do these things, then God will hook them up. And then tragedy strikes. 
tragedy comes into their life. And that river that God stopped before, well, this time around it wasn't stopped and they were swept away in it. And they say, you know what? I'm mad at that genie. I'm mad. I'm, I, I give up on that genie. He's not doing for me what he's supposed to do. You see, Joshua, guys, Joshua just simply threw himself into the mercy of the Lord. I do not believe he ever thought that he earned the river to be stopped. He just believed that he was serving the all-powerful God and that God would move in his life and that God would bring about his purposes in Joshua's life, even if it doesn't look the way Joshua thought it might look. And so then when Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army, he comes face to face with Jesus Christ. And Joshua says, who, believing he's, an, he's, he's another man, he says, whose side are you on? Are you on my side or, or are you on the enemy's side? The commander says, wrong question. The question is, are you on my side? And that's the question I want to ask you guys today. Have you been looking at God as if he's a genie, wondering whether or not God is on your side, wondering whether or not God is going to do for you what you want him to do for you? Or can you ask yourself the question, are you on God's side? Now, what is our hope? And friends, I want you to get this. I don't want you to miss our hope. The reality is, is we forget God. The reality is, is as hard as we try, we begin to treat him as if he's our genie. And if God's acceptance of us was based on how well we fear him, well, I would be the first one in hell. But you see, this commander came as a baby. He lived the life of complete awe and reverence before the Father that I should have lived. And when he died on the cross, guys, that righteousness was given to me. And I have a new nature, and you have a new nature, and it's a nature that fears God. You have the Spirit of Christ alive within you. And that is a spirit of holy reverence and awe. Our hope, like Joshua, is not in ourselves. Our hope is only in this commander. And what we discover is this. Joshua believed, and I, and I think you guys would agree with me, he believed that he was serving a kingdom that was unshakable. He believed that he was serving a God that was going to win. I don't think Joshua had any doubt in his mind. Do you realize that we're serving the same God? What is our hope? Man, like if, if our, I, let's just talk about our church right here, the garden, all right? Let's talk about the last four years of this church being in existence. Do you know how many times in this, our, our church's short history that I, thought, my goodness, I don't think we're going to make it. It was dwindling back down to my wife and I. But listen, Jesus said in Matthew, I will build my church. 
I will build my church. Not just for us, but the church as a whole. Like every generation, we're kind of freaking out thinking, oh my goodness, I'm not sure if we're going to make it. We're looking at our own lives and we're looking at our struggles and our failures and our doubts and we're saying to ourselves, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to make it through the rest of my life still believing in this God. Listen, we have a commander that is fighting for our souls. You have a commander that's fighting for your soul and he will win. Jesus said, I will build my church. And by the way, he wasn't just talking about an institution. He was talking about people. He was talking about you. I am the fighter. I'm the commander. I am the conqueror. And I am rescuing you from the powers of darkness. Your soul is in my grip. I'm saving you because of my blood. And I will win. Friends, are you on Jesus' team this morning? What does this lead us to, this realization of Jesus as our conqueror, as our fighter, as our commander? I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I I want to just read a verse, two verses to you as we close. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. He says this, Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable. Since, listen, since we, all right, are heirs of a family that will win. Since we are part of a kingdom that will will not fall with an economic shutdown. Since we are receiving a kingdom that, as we see in Revelation 22, that does win. Since that same powerful God who stopped the Jordan is the God who is fighting for your soul today, let us be thankful and please God, look what it does in us, by worshiping Him with holy fear and awe. Let us realize the work that God has done for us on our behalf, and may that cause us to fall on our faces in holy fear and awe and realize that this ground that we walk is holy ground. His work in you will be accomplished as it was in Joshua's life, not because Jesus is the genie that has joined your team, but because your team has expired and you have been invited to be part of Jesus' team. And there we find something that's truly founded and unshakable. Your response is no different than the response of Joshua right here. Now maybe you have been convicted of your sins. Maybe you've Realize that you have been serving God as if he's your genie. Friends, look to the commander. Look to the commander. I do not see how we can look to Jesus. I, do not, I, don't, I don't think that we can look to him on the cross and understand what the cross means and not then be overcome with a holy fear, reverence, awe, and worship for what he's done in our life.
Jesus has looked at you. He has looked at the place where you worship. He's looked at the place where you have recreation. He's looked at your homes and your marriages and your families and your workplaces and your neighborhoods. And he says, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. May we become a church that has experienced the power of God individually as well as corporately. May we not forget who God is. May we not take Him casually. May we not be so light with our faith. May we, may we not be so quick to write Him off when He doesn't part the river that we want Him to stop. And may we fall on our faces and worship Him with holy fear. Amen. Thank you for listening. Let's uh, pray and we'll sing a little bit together. God, we, we do uh, fall on our faces before you right now. We recognize that we often fail at remembering you. Sure, we, we, it's easy to remember you while we're sitting uh, under the word being taught or singing a song but how quickly we leave this place and go back into our lives and either completely forget you or begin to act like you are just our genie. And God, we repent of that. Lord, may the rivers that you stop in our lives ne never lead us to believe that you are just some helper on our team, but rather may we... May, may those opportunities, those, those moments where we see your power, may they remind us that you are indeed the Lord of all the earth. And may the joy of being invited to be part of your team and to be covered by the blood of Christ, may that be enough for us. And may we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.